It's absolutely true that Quillette made its name as a liberal site that pushed back against the excesses of progressive ideology. But there are now other sites that do that, right? There's Unheard and there's The Skeptic and there's like your podcast. And, uh, you know, it was it's, it's a great niche, but there's other people doing it, which I think is great. Uh, you know, things were lonely there for a while. And, and also just the people who work, well, we have other interests. Like I lately have become interest, fascinated by ancient history. And I got like behind me, I got a, like a dozen new books from university presses that I'm dying to excerpt about things like there's a new history of the Phoenicians. I don't think there's a culture war tie-in for the Phoenicians, but I, I think this would be a great parlor game. Somebody <laughs> needs to invent this. It, this is like, it just named the most random thing. <laughs> and I bet somebody could find a culture war. Yeah. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Canadian editor, journalist, and podcaster, Jonathan Kay. Throughout his career, he has written several books and worked in places like the Canadian newspaper, The National Post. He is currently Canadian editor of Quillette, a digital publication that was founded in 2015 as a haven for what John has called ideological refugees. Quillette has been maligned by some on the left, unfairly in my opinion, as alt-right adjacent, even as it skews pretty solidly, or at least classically liberal, and increasingly veers away from culture war topics. Uh, And we talk a lot about that in this interview. But before we get to the interview, I have a few items of business. The first is that my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom will take place April 4th through May 23rd. It will run for eight consecutive Mondays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. The last class just wrapped up, and I have to say, it was a spectacular group. Um, This format is working extremely well. These classes are small, uh, no more than 12 people, and there are a few students returning, but I am taking applications until March 18th. So if this interests you, you can go to daummasterclass.com and find out more about it. The second item, as I have mentioned over the last few weeks, is that the paperback edition of my most recent book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, is now available. It includes a new foreword. And if you join this podcast, Patreon, at the $20 a month level or higher, you will get a personally signed copy of this new edition of The Problem with Everything. Yes, I will sign it for you or for anyone you want, and I will send it to you myself. Joining at that level also gets you other perks. For instance, if you like, I will personally thank you at the top of the show. Um, I could also give a shout out to the charity of your choice. Um, And you could ask me a question about anything you like, including when are you going to shut up and get to the interview? And I will answer it at the top of the show. So go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and find out everything there. Okay. Uh, in this week's interview, I talk with Jonathan Kay about a range of things, including something I've been asking myself a lot lately, and that is, what is a conservative? Though you wouldn't necessarily know it from what he's done over the last several years, and that includes hosting the Quillette podcast, which is an interview program not dissimilar to this one, uh, and I highly recommend it. John has spent much of his life identifying as a conservative. His mother is the columnist Barbara Kay, uh, and she's been a high-profile conservative figure in Canada for a long time. John himself has been a columnist and an editor at the National Post, which is considered a conservative newspaper. We talked about what terms like conservative and liberal even mean in the post-Trump era, why he thinks political correctness hurts people on the left far more than people on the right, and why he thinks the wokeness wave that crashed onto our shores a few years ago, uh, not to mention the anti-wokeness wave that arose in reaction, is slowly making its way back out to sea. I'm not sure I have that metaphor right. I think maybe the wave just dies on the sand, um, but that would work too. Anyway, that's my bad metaphor, not his. And here is my interview with Jonathan Kay. 
Jonathan Kay, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. How are you? I'm well. I've wanted to have you on for a long time, partly because I think you're a really good interviewer, and I've been wanting to talk to you about interviewing. But lately, I've been thinking about something else as well, which is this question of what a conservative is, what a political conservative is, what it means to be a conservative person. And you are someone who's been steeped in conservative politics and journalism for a long time. You've been an editor at the National Post, which is a conservative Canadian newspaper. Your mother has been a columnist there for a very long time and is a well-known conservative figure in Canada. From where you sit now, and I know you're sitting in Canada, but in a post-Trump world where terms like liberal and conservative have sort of been depleted of meaning, how do you identify? Oh, wow. Um, I I would identify myself as a... (laughs) When I say classical liberal, the the words choke in my mouth a little bit because it's such a pretentious thing to say. Yeah, it's like saying you're a classic. It's like saying you're a classic. Well, it's like saying I don't own a television. Like there's something just so, (laughs) uh, like there's something so awful about it. But I think the term for a lot of people, it's the last sort of thing they have available that's in the conventional political vernacular that we know from maybe when we were younger. And, and even that doesn't seem right anymore. It's, it's an interesting time to ask your question. Uh, today, like an hour before we were having this conversation, Tucker Carlson, who's, uh, I think most people would call him a conservative. He's, uh, he's on Fox News. Most of us would call that a conservative. And he's, he's ranting about how the U.S. State Department is and and Ukraine are in cahoots and his social media kind of looks like Russian propaganda and this has been going on for a while where like conservatives have been oddly at least in the United States um, sympathetic to to Vladimir Putin and an expansionist Russian foreign policy which if you were over the age of like 40 is just so weird to see anybody who calls themselves conservative be like in the Russian camp you know in the Reagan era, I know. to be a conservative oh. was meant like, you know, you saw that was the communist regime, of course, that was like the evil empire and you were all in favor of freedom and, and you know, all that yeah, good stuff. What is, what is that about? Is, is it just because Trump was so wanting to be cozy with Putin? Like, are, is this coming from any sort of informed place? Well, look, it goes to your original question, which is what is a conservative now? And I mean, I'll spare everybody the the black turtleneck pretentious, you know, oh, let's go back to Edmund Burke definition of conservatism, although you know, there's plenty of good books on that. But e- even if your historical memory only goes back 20 or 30 years, it's what a conservative is now is, is totally different. So, you know, way back in days of yore, uh, you know, say George W. Bush era, you know, you were in favor of capitalism, you were skeptical of environmentalism, you were skeptical of the welfare state. Uh, things like, you know, maybe you oppose gay marriage, you, um, you opposed abortion. Uh, inter- okay. So all the things that are bad. Okay. This is making me feel better because I definitely <laughs> was not a conservative then. I, and then, you know, in foreign policy, maybe you, uh, even then there were different schools of foreign policy and conservative circles, but, but I'd say generally conservatives lined up be- behind George W. Bush in the Iraq war and people who consider themselves more progressives, so the term we'd use now, were skeptical. Like it was, a, it was a simpler time. Now it's it's just it's weird. And and Trump, people can argue about whether he's a symptom or a cause of this. Um, oh, to be a conservative, at least you know when I was got my start in journalism, meant you supported free trade. Uh, then Trump came in and he was a big time protectionist, and that flipped everything. So um, it's very much in flux. I, I think I was a fake conservative back then. And I think in the current climate, I, I don't even presume to call myself conservative um, because so much of the stuff you see that passes for conservatism, certainly on Fox News, is like just completely wacky to me. Well, it's radical. It's I mean, radical, I think yeah. Trump was a radical. Trump was a radical, and some of his policies were what once might have been called liberal. Other, but I mean, it was just it was right. like like any, like any populist, it was a grab bag. All populism was a grab. Even Hugo Chavez. I mean, it was. Yes, he was a leftist, but he also like it's with as with any personality cult, it's whatever 
the dear leader says, and Trump was no different in that respect. By the way, I'm here in Canada where we, we have a nominal opposition party. Well, I say it's a real opposition party nominally called the Conservatives, capital C. But in Canada, we don't really have anything that any American would recognize as, as conservative. Like the conservatives here are, you know, they have no plans to get rid of uh, single payer government health care. Uh, everyone supports the welfare state. There's no mainstream desire on either side to get rid of abortion rights. And yet we still have this party that's called the conservatives, which actually I think is a branding problem because there, there really is no big conservative movement in Canada. But just by habit, the right side of the spectrum is called the conservatives. That's kind of. OK, yeah. so when you were growing up in Canada and, you know, it's it's funny because you've called yourself a professional shit stirrer. <laughs> I'm assuming you're referring to yourself on Twitter, but your mother was also a professional shit stirrer. Uh, you know, she was, she was very sort of, at least to my, you know, from my research, it suggests she was a polarizing conservative figure in Canada. So when you were growing up in, in the eighties, seventies and eighties, what kinds of positions did she have? And what did you just sort of assume, uh, from a, from a conservative perspective? So I, I should say that, uh, my mom, her name is Barbara Kay, uh, and, and, you know, Coming from Quebec, we prefer black turtleneck terms like enfant terrible and stuff like that. We, you know, shit disturber is something I, I put on Twitter, but it's uh, <laughs> on my on my resume. Don't, don't, don't overestimate. Yeah, your, on, your on my followers. On my resume, it says enfant terrible. So it's 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 funny you ask that because um, my mom only became a newspaper pundit. 2002 or thereabouts. Um, before that, I mean, she you know she was a teacher and uh, she raised two kids, but it's not like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where like she'd been in journalism her whole life. And I followed in that vein. I actually, I ended up at a, a Canadian newspaper called the national post in the late nineties. It was my first job in journalism. Uh, she became a writer for the national post a few years later. And she had, since she became a columnist, she was like a more doctrinaire conservative than me. Like, uh, if you if and if you look at her writing to this day, the following she has, the things she writes about the tone, she's much more what you would recognize, what I, what maybe what even an American would recognize as a conservative. Uh, whereas I was always just much more, I think, heterodox. It's one of the reasons I left the National Post, two thousand fourteen, which I still I still write for the National Post. I just I don't think any real conservative reader of the National Post would would regard me as as like sort of a true conservative, but she, no, but she's an example of one of the few broadsheet newspaper conservatives in Canada. We don't have that many, but she's certainly one of them. Um, so there are, there are some, and, and to her credit, like she, I don't think she ever got, she never got sucked in by the Trump cult. Um, you know, she doesn't <laughs> fill her columns to this day with like quotes from Fox news or, I mean, I, she might watch Fox. News, I have no idea, but a lot of my conservative friends from a decade ago, uh, we maybe we're still friends, but we became politically estranged because they kind of like their politics changed overnight, depending on what Trump said. And I don't mind when people change their political views based on new facts. Like, you know, when the Iraq war went south, a lot of foreign policy hawks rethought their views. That's fine. But if you're rethinking your views because some guy tells you you have to change your views, that to me, that's a problem. And so I lost a lot of my conservative contacts uh, during the Trump era. Yeah. So I, I talked to a lot of liberals who lost a lot of their liberal friends and contacts during the Trump era. Yeah. So what well, happened on both sides? Works. It happened on both sides, right? Because it's a radicalizing uh, process. Yeah. So let's talk about Quillette because um, it's a super interesting publication. And I, I feel like it's gone through a couple of different phases, maybe kind of some changes lately. Um, you have been, it's, it's founded by Claire Lehman. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with Colette. Um, you are the Canadian editor. How would you characterize Quillette's kind of ideological position? Um, so uh, yeah, again, that, that, that turn of phrase, classical liberalism, we, we live in an age where people are defined by their heresies. So you could be on board with like 99% of progressive dogmas, but if you dissent on one, you're 
people might call you a conservative or or whatnot. And I think Quillette, if you look at the substance of most of the stuff we write, it's a lot of our writers are are progressive, but often they'll dissent on something, you know, the gender stuff or some of the, like the critical race stuff. And so they're liberal heretics or they're conservative heretics. They're people who have conservative views, but didn't go in for the Trump cult. And so mainstream conservatives, or at least mainstream, say, American political conservatives, um, may see them as dissidents. Quillette publishes a lot of people who are in flux. I, I (laughs) I tell people that sometimes the best way for me to get writers is to look at people who are in flux from whatever camp they were in. So if they were a conservative who've become estranged with some dogma in the conservative movement, that's a good time to like say, hey, do you want to write for a publication that's going to let you speak your mind? And and, and the same thing is true uh, for progressives who, you know, they, they're sick of towing the line on something they don't actually believe. Uh, so a lot of this isn't a really answer to your question, but a lot of the people I get to write for me are what I call ideological refugees. So they had they had a group, they either left the group or the group kicked them out, and they're looking for a place where they can give vent to again, you know, sort of classically liberal ideas in an atmosphere where they don't have to pay homage to these these things that you're supposed to say but don't actually believe on either side, right? Right. I've sent a I've sent a lot of writers to Quillette. I appreciate that. Yeah, you should get a re- referral fee. I should get, I should get a little <laughs> little uh, commission. Yeah. But yeah, I, but I mean, it's often the context is often, hey, I wrote this piece and the New York Times won't publish it, uh, and, and you know, I, I don't it's I don't want it to be in the Washington Examiner, but it's the New, the Washington Post won't publish it. Where should I go? And I, I've sent people to Quillette, and I kind of. Do you have a sense of then how their pieces are received? Is it sort of like, oh, well, this isn't Quillette. So, you know, of course, of course, this person would be saying this. Or I I feel like it's starting to change a little bit. Like there was a stigma maybe at one point, and I feel like it's falling away, but maybe it's just my own. No, no, it's it's 100% true that, well, the stigma for Quillette in the first year or two is that people hadn't heard of us, right? And then suddenly people had heard of us and like, we were mentioned the New York Times and all this stuff. And then the stigma <laughs> was, uh, oh, my God, this is so horrible. They're, uh, you know, <laughs> you can say things you're not allowed to say in Quillette. That's horrible. It was sort of, remember, there was like a, a so, remember the social panic around Substack a year ago? Um, oh, that it was alt right. Yeah. Jason, or was this sort of right. little hiding, hiding, hidey hole. For right. Which, fascists. And, yeah. and by the way, Substack, I actually know the guy who started Substack. It's, it's, it's absolutely not a radical thing. But what happens is because they refuse to censor the person that, you know, the progressives at any one moment demand to be censored, it's like, oh, you must be on the side of, of devils. So, that I'd say Quillette went through that phase like maybe three or four years ago. And then the last two or three years, it's sort of, sort of like the 12, uh, it's like a seven or seven steps. <laughs> this is the, mm-hmm. the acceptance phase. So I think <laughs> like every once in a while, you'll get people calling us like, oh, you're an extreme site. But that hasn't doesn't happen as much. And now the people who do say that are themselves like kind of wacky. Part of it is just like, you know, we have like, <laughs> Yale, Princeton, Harvard professors writing for us. Uh, we have, uh, you know, Nicholas Christakis. Uh, we have like these kind of world-class writers and, and, and podcast interviewees, uh, such as yourself, uh, two years ago. So it's, it's hard to, to look at the kind of writers Quillette produces and say, oh, these people are all radicals. Uh, you know, the other day I, I interviewed um, Ross, Duth- uh, Ross Douthat of the New York Times. I mean, if well, he's a conservative. He's a conservative, <laughs> but he's also a New York Times columnist. Yeah. Like, if yeah. if this was like alt right, you know, Crazyville right. Daily, like, I don't think his publicist would allow <laughs> allow him to. That's true, right? Yeah. Right? Right? So, yeah. yeah. Well, so um, you know, there was an article in the Nation back in December of 2019, written by Donna Minkowitz. I'm actually quoted in it. You know, and it's funny because Donna Minkowitz is somebody who like wrote for the Village Voice and she was one of these like, you know, cool indie alt media writers 
in the 80s, 90s when I was coming up. And like I always had a lot of respect for her. And she called me and she said, well, I'm interviewing people um, for an article. I'm going to write about how a lot of writers that I used to, I respect or used to respect are writing for this this publication, Quillette. And uh, the first paragraph is about how she'd stumbled across an article by Stephen Elliott. This is actually pretty extraordinary. I, I, a year ago, I came across an article by Stephen Elliott, a writer I'd admired. Well, this is before Stephen Elliott, um, you know, launched his suit against the uh, the person who started the shitty media men list. So I doubt um, she would have started the article this way then. But, you know, I, I find this sort of extraordinary. She says, even Megan Down, the feminist memoirist and opinion writer, told me that she had joined a Facebook group for Quillette fans and attended the group's meetup, which is true. So I, this article, I hate to give it so much airtime, and I'm sure Donna Minkowitz, I, I'm not, I don't mean to pile on her because she's done a lot of good work. I still, I have read this article multiple times and I don't under, I don't know what she's pointing to. She says that Quillette publishes uh, race science. Yeah. Um, what is going on here? I, to this day, I don't know what race science means. Um, it, I, I think as if we were publishing something called race science, I've, I've been an editor there for five years. I still have no idea what they're talking about. Um, look, by the way, the this kind of social panic got so crazy around this time uh, that even a, uh, there was, there was a, a progressive outlet uh, that ran, one sec, uh, what was it called? Mother Jones. Yeah, Mother Jones. So Mother Jones, which is very left of center, had to intervene and write an article basic, basically saying no one is talking about this. I think it's, 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 it's called, the article's titled No One Is Talking About Phrenology because phrenology is that discredited thing where like they tell you your personality based on your your skull shape or whatever um, oh okay that's been discredited oh okay. yeah well, uh, gotta get off my phrenology app uh, okay yeah uh well carl marx is a phrenologist true story so actually it was, it was in mother jones what was it called oh yeah so the article was called nobody is defending phrenology today and it was again this this left-wing website called mother jones and it actually, I, I remember opening up the article and said, wow, this is, this is kind of interesting. They were defending Quillette because they were saying there's all these people who are jumping around talking about how, but this was a time it wasn't just Quillette. It's like the New York Times was accused of being a white supremacist organization. And, and, and actually just the other day, Unheard was accused of being like a Nazi publication. There was this. Oh, there, I'm sure. There, yeah. was, there was this period and began in 2019 where if you weren't on board with like every single dogma, um, well, I remember, of course, you know, uh, James Bennett got drummed out of the op-ed office at the New York Times because he published an article that was, you know, made people angry. And right. so he, well, that was in 2020. That, I mean, this yeah. is this is pretty recent. I mean, when did when did Quillette start? Was it? Like well, Quillette, Quillette started uh, seven years ago. So I think so 2015. But th so so the article that we're talking about by Donna Minkwitz is called uh, Why Racists and Liberals and then there's, there's an exclamation mark after liberals keep writing for Quillette. The audience for this article isn't you and me. The article, the audience for this article is other people who Donna Minkowitz thinks they're my friends, they're my fellow liberals. This is kind of a warning shot saying, if you write for Quillette, I will consider you to be a bad person. And, occasion, and around 2019 is when you started to see articles like this. And and actually, you, I remember you saw what was that thing? Clubhouse. Remember that app? It was like the social media app. Yeah, I was t I was totally into Clubhouse okay. for a while. So Clubhouse. Do you remember there was a New York Times writer who she was like their social media editor, and she wrote this article saying, I forget what the title was, but it's like oh, it was, this was Taylor Lorenz. What she? Yeah, she accused somebody of of saying something racist on the clubhouse app and that person had not been the person speaking. Yeah. So, she, so like Taylor that. Lorenz yes. just kind of botched the story. But again, when she wrote those stories, the, the audience, I don't think was the kind of person who is on clubhouse. The audience was, if you are part of my group, I'm here to tell you that you're going to get thrown out of the group. If you write for this kind of website, or if you're on clubhouse, or if you have a sub stack, it's gatekeeping. Um, and I think back in 2019, maybe even 2020, there was a sense we can do this. Like we can we we can decide which which sites are um, are kosher and which aren't. 
based on, in some cases, like flimsy or non-existent existent evidence about their radicalism, uh, I don't think that works anymore. Um, but but there was a sense, I think, a couple of years ago that that could work. Yeah. And you you really do cover the culture wars. And I think you do it in, in a really thoughtful way. And it doesn't feel reactionary and it doesn't feel didactic. Um, but I wonder, and this is something I struggle with, do you worry that you are just banging on about political correctness oh, too much? Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> and and um, in fact, if you look at our content, most of our content these days, I mean, we, we started Editors of Quillette, we started having this conversation uh, a year or two ago, um, that history works in cycles. And this woke stuff, it's pro- it probably has already peaked. And pushing back against something that's already peaked, it can get dull. Um, and, and also just like our own enthusiasm for it. Like most of our readers know that there are certain ideological movements that are just inimical, inimicable to, if that's the word, to free speech and liberalism stuff that we've made that message. And, you know, sometimes if we have a really good story about it, we'll, we'll keep going. Um, but if you look like, go back to Quillette.com and look at you know, the last 50 articles, a lot of it is stuff like just sort of, you know, we had an article about the hundredth anniversary of James Joyce's Ulysses, which had nothing to do with the culture wars. It was just an appreciation. I'm sure there's a way to make it have to do with the culture there's, wars. Well, here's one, you know, fusion power is coming. Uh, <laughs> the trans okay. the transmogrification of Harvey Weinstein. I'm, I, trans that has trans in it. But still, I think we're the only website <laughs> that has the word transmogrification in, in the headline. Like we just assume people know what transmogrification. I didn't. Okay, I, I don't. I don't know what it means. I I'm not sure either. But I didn't edit the article, but I like the fact that like my colleagues assume we'll know. Here's this a tribute to the political fiction of Frederick Forsyth. Forsyth. Uh, so. It is absolutely true that I think P.J. O'Rourke, a tribute, like, look, it's it's absolutely true that Quillette made its name as a liberal site that pushed back against the excesses of progressive ideology. But there are now other sites that do that, right? There's Unheard and there's The Skeptic and there's like your podcast. And, uh, you know, it was it's, it's a great niche, but... There are other people doing, which I think is great. Uh, you know, things were lonely there for a while, and and also just the people who work. Well, we have other interests. Like I lately have become interested, fascinated by ancient history, and I got like behind me. I got a like a dozen new books um, from university presses that I'm dying to excerpt about things like there's a new history of the Phoenicians. I don't think there's a culture war tie-in for the Phoenicians, but I you know. I, I think this would be a great parlor game. Somebody needs to invent this. If this is like, it just named the most random thing. And I bet somebody could find a culture war. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, trans, trans, what is it? Trans modification. Trans modification. Trans. Yeah. Okay, but that has it, that has trans in it. So it's, there's got to be some think, kind of identity. Uh, you're talking about six degrees of Joe Rogan, aren't you? Uh, or, okay. or six degrees Maybe of that. So. so yeah, so I'm sure I can scrape out a culture war thing for the Phoenicians, but I'm not going to do that. Like, I I don't want to, five years from now, I don't want to be like the only journalist who's still talking about that woke fad from the early 2020s. But do you think you will be? Okay, because this is what I want to ask you. I feel, because I feel the same way. I don't want to go on about culture war stuff every episode, but your numbers are higher if you do. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And um, I shouldn't, well, so I shouldn't be sharing uh, confidential podcast listenership data, but it's absolutely true that if I have, because I see it just as you see the numbers for your podcast, I see the numbers for my podcast. And if I have a guy on who's like, I was fired from XYZ University for saying biology is real or whatever, I know I'm going to get a ton of listeners because it's it's a you know hot button subject and culture warriors want to hear. And by, by the way, it could be a great podcast. Doesn't mean it's not a good podcast. But if I have another guy on, I'll give you you know Ross Douthat, who I mentioned, New York Times guy, he came on to talk about his new book, which which it's a medical book. It has nothing to do with the culture wars, right? Um, it's about um, God. What is it? It's about Lyme disease. Yeah, Lyme. Yeah, Lyme disease. Lyme yeah. disease. Now look. You've got a star guest. The subject is a little bit of a snooze. It's a great book, by the way. 
And he's a fantastic writer. By the way, he has always been my favorite New York Times columnist. And when I was an LA Times columnist, you know, I was considered a lefty at that time. People would ask me who's my favorite columnist. I always said him, and that's like their heads exploded. Yeah, but yeah. He got canceled. So he's he's a beautiful writer. It's a great book. I recommend it. But the subject doesn't exactly jump off your your phone or your Spotify feed as like, wow, I gotta listen to this. Like, you know, it's one of the top 20 podcasts about Lyme disease. Like it's so you so as as a content provider, God, that's a pretentious expression, but ed, editor, publisher, podcaster, interviewer, whatever, you do have to make decisions and saying, yeah, I'm going to get better numbers with the red meat culture war stuff. But on the other hand, if I keep doing that, that's my brand. And a year or two from now, or you know, when people are like, okay, I've had enough of that. You're going to be like, I wish I'd done more on Lyme disease. You know, <laughs> I, I, I could have had Ross Douthat on to talk about Lyme disease. And I said, no. So <laughs> it's like, no, but it's like, it's like, you know, it's like anything. It's like any other um, profession where you're, you're balancing short term and long term stuff. And also you're balancing your own interest. You can't stay in this profession if you're not interested in what you're exactly. doing. And exactly. I'm not, I'm not interested in being a seven day a week culture war guy. Uh, I would say like when I started at Quillette um, five years ago, I was maybe like a four day a week culture war guy. And now I'm more like down to two days a week. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like it'll I'm, be like a Sabbath. It'll be soon. It'll be. Yeah. yeah and on, on the Sabbath, I do nothing. Uh, no, on the Sabbath, you should do the culture war thing. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. It's just a one day. A week. I, I've been yeah. doing, I've been doing it wrong. So yeah, yeah. Well, it'll flip around. <laughs> so. Um, and I think, and by the way, I, I can't speak for my colleagues at Quillette, but I think to some extent they feel the same way. I know that our discussions, um, like when we talk about what's happening in Ukraine, there's, there's no cultural aspect to what's happening. It's just an important story. Um, and I think there's a lot of stories like that. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. You've said political correctness hurts people on the left more than it hurts people on the right. 100%. What do you mean by that? I think most people pretty much know what you mean, but just in a nutshell. So I did a TEDx talk on this. (laughs) By the way, my joke about TEDx is when somebody says, did you do a TED talk? And I say, not exactly. Uh, Cause it was, it was TED- it's TED adjacent. <laughs> it's, it's TED adjacent. And, uh, and I have this photo of me in the TEDx talk, which like 
my body is strategically blocking the X. So it's like, it's like Ted. Smart. And, yeah. Oh, that's some smart media. Megan, you, you think? Technique. You think any idiot gets in front of this microphone, <laughs> Megan? It's, so anywho, I talked about how we talk about cancel culture. And just for the record, I've, and I mentioned this, I think, in that, that, that speech I gave. I've never complained about being canceled because I've never been canceled. And just the opposite is all this cancel culture stuff has turbocharged my career because you write about it and it's gold. And I've like in Canada, I've become one of the, you know, I'm not the only guy, but sort of one of the leading people to talk about this stuff. And it's, you know, it's probably the reason you know my name. Like it's, I, I have nothing to complain about in terms of cancel culture. I still write books and all. No one's canceled me. The people that I see canceled, and I got a good look at this because I, I, I worked before Quillette. I worked at a place that was very progressive. It was a Canadian magazine. The Canadian literary scene is unusually woke, even by the hyper-woke standards. And I saw very smart people who were scared to put a sentence together because what if I get a syllable wrong and my friends get mad at me? And, and they, they inhabited very progressive subcultures. And I don't just mean the magazine itself. I mean, like maybe some of them wanted to become sort of creative, creative writing professors, or they were looking for grants for their books. And they knew that the people on the grant giving panels were like all super woke and just their social milieu where this stuff is crowdsourced. So like on Twitter or Facebook, like if they don't have the right attitude or their, their article gets something slightly wrong, they'll get called out. And these are all hyper-progressive people. And I saw them getting beaten down. Uh, they were getting beaten down by people who call themselves their friends. Often they would stay in the profession, you know, because it's something they love doing or it's something well, they, they don't have any other skills. <sighs> I mean, these are, the, I don't have any other skills. So, so I'll speak for myself for whatever reason, you know, they had some reason for getting in the profession originally. They're creative people. They originally, at least they had something they wanted to say, but as the years passed, it's like anything else you stay out of habit, maybe sometimes forgetting why you originally got in and maybe not noticing that the conditions have changed and you can't say what you wanted to say. Or you just forget what you wanted to say because you're told what you should say. Um, I mean, this is that's what allyship is all about. It's like, don't think, we'll think for you. And these people, by the way, I don't think I made their lives any easier because, you know, they're, I was at this magazine and you know, here's John Kay, their, coll their colleague is uh, this, you know, raving Jewish Nazi guy who uh, has all kinds of crazy thoughts and you know, their friends were all horrified. <laughs> were you an editor? Were you having to? I was the editor in chief. I was the yeah. EIC. Oh, you were the editor. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. And, and, and uh, I mean, I, let's, you know, the arrangement didn't last long. I was there for two years. And by the way, I have a lot of respect for these people that some of them are still my friends, nice people. I didn't make their job easier um, because they had spent half the time apologizing for this crazy boss they had. And so, so then I left and then, you know, six months later I was at Quillette and at Quillette, suddenly, like, I can see anything I want. And my writers can see anything I want. And we can breathe. And we don't have to worry about getting canceled because we all have each other's back. And Claire, my boss, isn't going to fire me because, uh, you know, of some slip of the tongue or whatnot. And, and I look back and, you know, I was kind of like when I was at my previous job at this woke place. I mean, I think I was kind of like very narcissistic narcissistic. I, I, was, I was kind of angry, like, you know, why these people, you know, they don't agree with me or, you know, they're. What kinds of um, like disputes would you have with reporters or writers? Like, can you think of an example of a story that they wanted to do one way and you wanted to do a different way? Um, a lot of, so it's interesting because a lot of the time, I mean, there were, there were some things that we just disagreed on in substance. And a lot of this had to do with, with parochial, these are Canadian issues and I'm not going to get into this like indigenous stuff in Canada, which um, is just like very specific to Canada. And uh, I don't think it's worth the time it would take to explain it, but sometimes it was a matter of language. So, so for instance, not, so we didn't always agree, disagree necessarily on the substance of something, but like sometimes I'd read something and the language was very much like, I don't want to, I don't want to like make fun of it, but it's sort of like allyship and, um, institutional racism and decolonizing this and decolonizing that. And I would sometimes say like, I kind of agree with the thrust of this article, but like, let's write this in a way that isn't like this treehouse club code phrase 
thing where if you if you don't get this jargon or you don't use this jargon, you're not going to understand the article. Because one of my big problems was that a lot of this stuff is written in a way that is not meant to convince the reader or even educate the reader. It's written in a way to signal the authors and the editors' adherence to a certain kind of ideology and saying, look, I'm using these kinds of words strung together in this kind of way. That means I am a paid up member of Club Woke. And I don't actually care that much if the person is in Club Woke. What I do care about is that if you're writing for a mass audience, you can't write in a jargon that's intended to signify your own loyalties. You're supposed to communicate in something that brings people in, not that like says I'm in this club. And so a lot of our, well, a lot of my frustrations were about like language and signifiers and uh, symbolic stuff. Um, also, I mean, that, so that's one like explanation. The other thing is just, I put wacky stuff on Twitter that was just off message. Right. And, and my colleagues would get mad at me and I kind of don't blame them. Like, I mean, you know, you're not he, that wacky on Twitter. You're certainly, you're by, not by, trolling. Oh, no, by no, 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 no. But by, no, no, no. by, by American standards, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I don't think I am, but by Canadian. Oh. <laughs> Right. No, but my, by Canadian, it's called like Canadian yeah. literature, Canlit. By Canlit yeah. standards, I am like Joe Rogan on steroids. Because uh, if you yeah. if you look at Canlit Twitter, it's like a lot of the, the tweets are like, I spent the weekend staring at the wall thinking about my settler guilt. And it's like not a parody. <laughs> like they, they actually tweet shit like this. Like, um, And by the way, my, to their credit, my colleagues did not tweet stuff like that. But they kind of had to pretend that that was a normal thing to tweet. And I, you know, I would quote, quote tweet this stuff and say, wow, you need to deprogram yourself. You're in a cult. And <laughs> like that would just send people nuts. Like says, you're not, al- you're not allowed to say that. And, and part of it is just, I have no filter between brain and typing fingers. Like it's, I was not equipped <laughs> for that job because to be an editor in chief, especially at like a Canadian literary magazine, you have to be an adult, right? You have to say, I, this world has its conventions. This subculture has its rules. And if I'm going to take this job and like the robe and the sash and the, the coronet that goes with it, so this is becoming like a cosplay thing. But if I'm going to take on all those things, I, I, I can't just be the same guy I was when I was at the National Post or when I was, you know, at Quillette, like sort of reversing the chronology here. Like you, you have to... You have to obey the rules of the game. Yeah, well, you have to read the room, as they say. And Although I, would, I hate that expression. It, oh, it's a horrible expression. But I, this is about ego, because I think there's a certain kind of person, and I was that person, who's such an egomaniac that he says, by sheer force of persuasion, I'm going to show people that the rules of this little subculture are dumb, and I'm going to show them that my rules are better. And like, even if you're right, it's such a hubristic thing to do. Uh, but I like, that's kind of what I did and surprise, surprise, it didn't work. Um, so then, then just by sheer luck, I mean, most of my career is just blind good luck. Uh, you know, Claire, Claire Lehman recruited me, uh, for this, uh, thing called Quillette. And the thing about Quillette is, you know, there's not many of us who work there, but we're all kind of like that. Like we all, we're all the people, we have no tolerance for cults. We have no tolerance for uh, disingenuous speech or for like um, for language, boilerplate language intended to indicate your loyalty to any particular set of, of ideological rules. Like it's just none of us have any patience for that. When you say boilerplate language, I'm thinking of a word like cisgender, which is now just de rigueur in basically all legacy mainstream media. And, you know, I want to make sure we touch on the gender thing, at least for a few minutes here, because this is something that I continue, I, I increasingly feel is important. I, I have been telling myself to kind of stay out of, uh, you know, obvious third rail culture war topics as much as possible. But I, I really feel like this is a story that has to be, has to be gotten right. And most people are just willfully uh, unable to do it. Can I, can I tell you a secret? Okay. So your listeners have to like promise not to listen to this, but I, so when I started at this Canlit magazine, uh, back in 2000, 
2014, 2015, one of the first articles that I remember dealing with as an editor was by a transgender writer. Um, and it was a critique of books that have transgender protagonists. And after the person transitions, everything is, is better. Like it's sort of like there's this sort of utopian conclusion where they transition and like the clouds part. It was a really good article. Um, the, I think the author's name was Casey Plett. Um, I remember it was a really good article. And I remember I went to the editor. I, I wasn't the direct editor, but I was looking. I said, yeah, this is the kind of thing I want to publish. It's like, because I'd never read any of these books. But the article itself, again, transgender writer critiquing the genre that the writer was, was familiar with. And I went to the, <laughs> I went to the handling editor, uh, this guy called Drew, and I said, this is a great article, but like... Um, the writer keeps using this word cis. What the hell does that mean? Like, is that a typo? And, and Drew says to me, no, 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 cis means like non-trans. And I remember thinking, oh, cool. There's a word for that. Um, okay, great. All right. And then I didn't think anything of it. And I was like, well, that's the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what year was this? This is 2015. Uh, and I remember it was, I, I remember like it was yesterday and and we published the article. Uh, perfectly good articles. As I said, like really good writer. And I what I liked about the article. First of all, this this I there were kind of seeds of our, of our disagreement because I remember the first draft. It was just there. The word was there, cis, without explanation. And and I think my I, projecting here, but my sense is like the people involved knew that not everybody knows what cis means. I didn't. I consider myself reasonably educated. But there, it was seen as a kind of a, a virtue in not explaining it, because if you don't explain it, it's sort of like saying, well, the sort of person who reads this article and reads this magazine, of course, knows what, knows what cis means. And that was like the opposite of what I wanted. I was like, let's get more people to read this. So if I remember, I insisted, that was a long time ago, but I, I said like, I'm happy to use the word cis if you define it, because if I don't know what the word means, chances are most people aren't going to know. So I was, I was absolutely fine with that. I like the article, but that was a time when you could have constructive debates about this stuff because neither side felt comfortable saying, well, the other side's full of shit, or we're not allowed to debate this. And it was just a few years later that it went from, well, let's have a debate about trans rights to the very act of having a debate about trans rights is a, a kind of like Holocaust because it sort of, it, it exterminates the right to exist. I mean, we all know the rhetoric. And, and it may surprise some of your listeners to know that when I was at this magazine, uh, you know, I put a, a trans person on the cover of one of our uh, editions and it was the cover story. And at the end of the cover story, the person announced, this is the, the author, announced that they themselves had transitioned during the course of writing the story. Like it was the wokest <laughs> what? story ever. Wait, yeah, no. That must have taken them a long time to write the story. Or Well, <laughs> I, I think it was... I hope. It was... <laughs> the story took me 20 minutes to write. No, but <laughs> the story... First of all, this is a great writer. I uh, believe her name Mary Rogan, if I remember. I, it's some, by the way, just... I, I don't say this like in a satirical way. Like they may have changed their names and or pronouns or whatever. But... It was a great piece of investigative journalism. This is this is a writer that I first found. Uh, they'd written a piece for the New York Times Magazine, so that it wasn't just like some activist staring at their belly button. Like it was a really good piece. And this, I think, was maybe 2016. And I loved this issue because I saw people on both sides debating it intelligently, and I hadn't seen a lot of stuff about it. So it was kind of like this great period to run articles about it because. It wasn't like we all remember a couple of years later when when Jesse Single wrote a fantastic cover story for Atlantic, and his piece was as good as this piece, Mary Rogan, I think, uh, if I remember correctly. But but Mary's piece, I think, got it like a, a fair reading because it was like maybe both sides learned from it. But just a couple of years later, by the time Jesse wrote his piece for Atlantic, there were like forty seven different things you weren't allowed to say, and Jesse said three of them. And so as a result, like for the next like three years, Jesse's life was fending off insane conspiracies about how he's a trans. Well, it's still going on. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's awful. And by the way, I am proud 
to have written what I think, at least at the time, was the definitive debunking of the anti-Jesse singles theories. That's a great piece. Yes, you did. And, was and I remember writing it saying 47 people are going to read. That's my favorite random number. But 47 people are going to read this because who cares about this, like, you know, random journalist? It became one of our most read pieces of the year at Quillette because people, I think a lot of people were just appalled by what happened to Jesse. I, I don't know if we presume this knowledge on the part of your listeners, what would happen to him. But it was just this insane mobbing where just the 10 second version of it is like you had, you had a writer at slate. Like these aren't just randos. These are, you had, you had people with book contracts, you had professors and it wasn't just like, Oh, you're a transphobe. It was like, you're a pedophile. You're, they were just making up garbage about him. And if you've met Jesse, I mean, I've had him on my podcast. Yes, I know him personally. He's been on the show. That's an impeccably written piece. He's a teddy bear. But the guy, if you met him is like, he couldn't hurt a butterfly. Like he's just the nicest, most gentle guy in the world. So what happened? Okay, Mary Rogan, the person who wrote this piece, is she still writing? I mean, why aren't this the the people that you're citing who were trans themselves who were writing these these fantastic nuanced pieces? Where are they now? Are they not allowed to be in the mix because they're not lining up with the narrative? Um, so I I don't presume to know um, because I think. So when I left this this Canlet magazine in early 2017, uh, one of the things that I knew I was doing was that I wasn't just leaving a job; I was leaving a peer group. And I think that's that wasn't a really as hard a decision for me as it was for others because I'd been at the National Post for many years. I was already like a middle aged. I was already in my 40s. I had other friends. I had other interests. I played sports with other people like I wasn't one of like a 25 year old whose entire life revolved around some literary subculture and when I walked away from that I was just walking away from everything so um, but I did know that when I walked away from that job and I walked away in a, in a <laughs> kind of a public huff uh, I wrote a whole manifesto for the National Post about it it was a, it was a whole magilla and uh, when I did that I, I knew there were probably at least a dozen people who I knew and respected and liked who this, this would push our, our friendships to the breaking point because I wasn't just, it wasn't just, Oh, you know, I want to spend more time with my family. It was kind of like, fuck this whole world. You guys are full of shit. Uh, and, and, and I was at least implicitly casting judgment on the kind of sacrifices people in that world were making in order to keep their jobs and publish their articles and it was it was hard to do, hard for me to do in a way that didn't connote the fact that I thought they were ruining that subculture with these sort of like crazy progressive ideological rules that everybody was laying down. It got personal. It got personal. You wrote a book about conspiracy theories. You wrote a book called Among the Truthers, 2011. Do you make any connections between conspiracy-minded people and people who tend toward this sort of extreme social justice kind of culture? There's a paranoia in both of those camps. So the the short answer is yes, but the long answer involves the caveat that I, I'm not casting judgment because what I found while researching that book, I mean, this is a while ago, this was published in 2011, um, is that even people who are not conspiracy theorists, in order to get through the day, they need some theory of evil, right? And in, in Christian philosophy, this often referred to as theodicy, you know, questions like, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's all kinds of mystical religious ideas about devils and, um, you know, divine will and mysterious lessons that we can't even figure out with our human brains because it's sort of like, some cosmic explanation, but in a post-religious world, we, what do we do? Like, remember that phase where like Ann Coulter would every year she'd publish a book called like treason or evil or like, but (laughs) it was always like, but it wasn't like, it worked. It worked. Oh my God. She's, you know, she's bathing in a bathtub full of money somewhere right now. (laughs) But, but the idea was that her, her, her liberal political opponents weren't just wrong. They were malevolent, evil creatures. And 
for a lot of very strong conservatives, the locus of evil was like liberalism, as it was then called. Um, and it's a short jump from that to the idea, well, Barack Obama is liberal. He's like this avatar of liberalism. He must be some kind of conspiratorial agent who's here to seduce Americans. He doesn't even have a birth certificate because why else would Americans vote for him if he weren't like some kind of Manchurian candidate who's, you know, who's, who's here to like hypnotize them with his liberal evilness and destroy America? Like, but it all starts with the theory of evil. And if you were a progressive right now, what's your theory of evil? That there's this invisible cosmic force called institutional racism that you can't see, but which is unfalsifiable. It's sort of like the devil, and it's in all of us. We we're born with whiteness, and it's the source of horribleness in the universe, and we have to spend our life getting rid of it. It's a religious mission. On the other hand, if you're like a conservative, um, you have some theory about like big government or uh, or the media, you know, the the liberal media. That's like you know the source of evil in the universe is we keep being lied to by these elites, these globalists. And it's a short jump from that to like Alex Jones stuff, right? But it all starts with the idea that we need a theory of evil. And it's, I think this is a universal human trait, whether you are a, a conspiracy theorist or not. What I object to is when those theories become enforced by school boards or by professional subcultures of the state. So my right-wing theories of evil right now are just as wacky as left-wing theories of evil. The problem is that some of these pr progressive theories of evil are like, it's a kind of enforced mysticism where you can't say, well, actually, I don't believe, you know, that there's this sort of insidious contaminating force around us that's called whiteness or colonialism or whatever you're calling it. I like, I reject that theory. I, I want to deal with the world as I see it and experience it with my five senses as opposed to this kind of mystical belief system that we're suffused with evil. And people can have any theory of evil they want as long as they don't force it on students, as long as they don't force it on, uh, you know, it becomes like enforced by government or, or it becomes a basis for censorship of media. That's my problem. And in Canada, that's, that's become like a huge issue, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, John, this has been a great conversation. I really admire what you do. And I appreciate your talking to me. I just have one last question going out. It's something that people ask me. I want to ask you, if a young person comes to you and says, I want to be a journalist, I want to be a writer, I want to speak my mind, but I'm afraid to do it. And don't tell me to just, you know, suck it up and be brave because that's easy for you to say. I don't want to get canceled before I even start. I hear this all the time. What do you tell them? So I tell them they're 100% right. And I actually disagree. And I've said this publicly. I disagree with people who are just like, step up, be brave. Do, like, it's easy for somebody like me to say. Uh, but if I were in the shoes of a lot of these people, you know, let's say you're six weeks away from getting your PhD thesis in sociology. And, you know, all of that could come crashing down because you you tweet the wrong kind of thing. You know, you may kill your career. I, I'm not going to tell you, oh, yeah, you know, it's it's worth getting 12 retweets to speak your truth so that, you know, like... <laughs> so you're, well, you have, your yeah. career's ruined. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and, and this goes to the problem that the pro one of the problems with cancel culture is it's regressive, that it doesn't affect somebody like me because I'm, I'm older and I'm established, but it does affect somebody who's coming up. So it has a perversely regressive effect where the people who are least privileged... Are, are affected most and the people who are more insulated are affected least. What I, what I tell anybody who's in journalism, whether, whatever their political views, I'd say, if you want to get into journalism, you want to get into the world of ideas, you need to put down more than one bet. You can't just say, well, I'm going to start a Substack, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to become like the say anything writer for Quillette or something, you know, put down different things. Like it, it could, in my case, it's like books, podcasts, Quillette, like sort of a variety of things so that if one thing gets you in trouble, you still have fallbacks. And and I tell people like, if you're spending 40 hours a day fighting the culture wars, and that's, that's like probably 25 hours too many, you should be developing a career in something else. It could be a trade. It could be, you know, a family business, but find some other way that you can make money, that you can develop yourself. And it may feed in, like it may feed into your, your literature. It may be like you're, you're in academia or you're, you have a political career, you're an activist, 
or it may be totally unrelated, but don't put all your eggs in one basket so that somebody, that if you do get canceled, you're screwed. And then, I don't know, you end up being 30 years old and you have no job skills and you have to go flip burgers. Like that's a real But they're going to say if they get canceled, if I tell somebody go to medical school and you can be a doctor who writes, they could still get canceled from doctor world. Could they not? A hundred percent. You see it all the time. Like there's <laughs> their McMaster University here. In, in Canada has a particularly uh, woke med school and I, I get uh, emails all the time. And uh, the craziest emails are from people who like, they came from like Pakistan or something to study. And they're like, I just got here from Karachi and holy crap, you guys don't live in a free society. Like, like they're, they came to Canada thinking they were coming to this paradise of free thinking and liberalism. And in some cases they find their, the at least implicit crowdsource censorship is much worse than whatever country they came from. It's it's really crazy to read these things um, because you're getting the perspective of somebody outside that society. And I always tell them the same thing because they'll say, you wouldn't believe what's happening inside, like, you know, the, the, the Zoom session we just had. And I say, and they'll say, like, you know, should I go public with it? And I said, you shouldn't go public with it. You should record it and give it to me because that's my job. Your job is to go whatever, become an anesthesiologist, become a radiologist, go save lives. Let me do my job. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, That's a- but keep your receipts, keep your receipts. And, and you know, I, I've mixed feelings about this because we're always saying, oh yeah, we live in the Stasi society and we're always being watched. It's a panopticon. And then I say, well, of course you should start recording people, but <laughs> you know, I become part of the problem, but like, there's there's no other way because if you know I don't know if your listeners know a woman named Lindsay Shepard who uh, she blew the whistle here at a place called Laurier University. No one would know Lindsay Shepard's name if she didn't hit the record button on her phone before that whack job supervisor of hers started like um, you know saying all these crazy things to her. Uh, and there's all sorts of of examples like this. You know, I had a guy from Yale Law School. Uh, that was a story you may remember from last year. Uh, he was a second year law student at Yale Law School. And you had an assistant dean basically telling me he had to apologize to the whole school for some party invitation he'd done. And he hit record button during that meeting. And uh, we haven't heard a lot from that assistant dean since then. So sometimes, you know, if the Stasi are onto you, you got to outstasi them. Wow, that's a really good advice. And so basically what you're saying is that anybody, if they get frustrated on their Zoom call, they should just record it and send it to you. Wow, when you say it like that, it sounds so creepy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of guess that. <laughs> I mean, well, so. No, I'm kidding you. I So this, yeah, we don't want you know, to send like an that. invitation. That, yeah, but. but uh, it wouldn't no, be the I, worst. I think that's a really good point. Wouldn't be the like, worst thing in the world if. The people who are wrecking other people's lives um, because of purported ideological failings were put on notice that their own behavior, which is often like ordering on sociopathic, asked them to think, how would that behavior look if it was seen by the outside world? And often, by the way, when this kind of behavior sees the light of day, like they don't even try and defend it. They just like, they delete their social media and, and they go into hiding because Sometimes, unlike the person who's like the cancel, you know, the would-be cancel culture victim who who has a story to tell and is like, hey, you know, it's, I was joking or I was making a mistake, the people who are going after that person, they have no story to tell except that they're sociopaths. So, um, unfortunately, yeah, I, I wish I wish it didn't. My advice didn't sound so creepy, but uh, I guess there's no hiding from the truth. I don't. I didn't. I no, it didn't it's creepy. Sound creepy. No, it, it, sounded, it, it sounded overly generous. No, no, no. It sounded it, like you know you uh, you were had a, an open call for submissions. For, um, I kind of do though. I kind stories. of do. You do well. Look, some of my best stories. So. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to like pimp for my own stories here, but I did like this this huge story in Haverford College. Um, I did a huge story in Smith College. I did a huge story on Brock University here in Canada. These were like big, like four or five thousand word stories. All of them were based on insider leaks, either video or emails or recorded Zoom sessions. And in fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that the COVID pandemic was boom times for well, for me in particular because. All of these meetings that would have been in person were on electronic media and so much easier to record. And so someone who they're trying to cancel them, they hit the record button. It's electronic. They send me an MP3 file and I'm like, holy crap. And then, you know, you've got them dead to rice. Then you're next thing you know, you're emailing the school's 
communications department saying, uh, hey, are the voices in this recording that it sounds a lot like that's your assistant dean, don't you think? And they're, man, you should uh, you should see the rest. Yeah. Well, but but that wouldn't happen if if this were done in person. Although actually, although interestingly, the Yale story was done in person and that guy, he had a lot of chutzpah. He recorded it anyway. So, you know. Yeah, some of it is done in person. But no, you know what? I think you make an excellent point. And I'm going to think about that, too, because I sometimes I'm guilty of just telling people to like, you know, ball up and just, no, not everybody just, is as fabulously right. successful as us megan that's well, also like, not everybody is just as obtuse i think I, i'm a little bit anti-social or something like you know some people actually care <laughs> what other people think of them it's it's, uh, it's a real problem when you're a parent giving advice to your kid because like you know my daughter will be asking me for advice and my wife's there and of course i just blurt out well you just tell that person to fuck off and my wife's like mm, uh okay <laughs> let's let's think of other strategies um and yeah and so i think sometimes uh you do need people like us in the background we're like the bad cop but you also need a good cop who um tries to bring out the best of people before these things happen so that maybe they don't happen in the first place, right? Maybe people don't act sociopathically and they don't have to have their behavior reported in places like Quillette because maybe like they think for a second, hey, maybe different people have different opinions and not everybody's a racist if they disagree with me. That's crazy talk, I know, but it's <laughs> what I believe. Yeah, stay in your lane. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right. Well, John, this is terrific. Thank you for uh, everything that you're doing. And um, hopefully we can talk again sometime. That was fun. Thank you. That was my interview with Jonathan Kay. He is Canadian editor of Quillette and has been a TEDx speaker and op-ed writer at the National Post. And he is currently the host of the Quillette podcast. His freelance work has appeared in places like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Gotham, and Canadian Jewish News. His books include Among the Truthers and Legacy, How French Canadians Shaped North America. I should add that John is notable as a photographer in at least one capacity. You know that photo of me that used to be part of the Unspeakable Show logo, the one with me in front of the mic? John took that when he interviewed me for the Quillette podcast back in the fall of 2019. I liked it so much that I used the photo for the show, though now it's been replaced by an image of a nuanced AF mug, which, how's this for a segue? You can get, you can get that mug if you join this show's Patreon at the $10 a month level or higher. And if you do that, you can also join our bi-weekly hangouts on Sunday evenings when we get together on Zoom and talk about a recent episode of the podcast if you join at the $20 a month level or higher, you will get a personally signed copy of the new paperback edition of The Problem With Everything, which includes a new foreword. Um, I can also shout out your name if you like uh, and or the nonprofit organization of your choice within reason at the top of the show. So go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable to find out about that. Finally, unrelatedly, the deadline for applications for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom is March 18th. The class itself runs from April 4th through May 23rd, and you can go to daummasterclass.com to find out about that. And that, surely, is enough for this week. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.